This is an ABC podcast. If you're a fan of football, of rugby league or rugby union, you'll know who Matt Rogers is. He's represented Australia in both codes and been a star player in the NRL and in Australian rugby. In making his way in football, Matt was following in the footsteps of his dad, Steve Rogers, a footballing legend with the Cronulla Sharks. Matt learnt a lot from his dad and he spent a long time trying to be just like him. But as the years have gone by, Matt has also developed qualities that his father didn't possess, to know when to ask for help and how to lean on others. And this has let Matt be a different kind of dad to his own kids. His memoir is A Father's Son. Hi, Matt. Hi. Tell me about what happened the first time you played a game of rugby league when you were just four. Oh, well, I, I, I complained to mum about not being allowed to play because I was so young, but my elder brother, who was six and a half, you know, he's a couple of, two and a half years older than me, was playing. So I just hated the fact that my dad was playing, my brother was playing, and I wasn't allowed to play. So um, I... Uh, kicked and moaned and carried on and uh, finally mum relented and said, if your father says it's okay, you can play. And um, dad said, yep, all right. And uh, out I trotted, 1980 it was, and there was no mini league back then. It was full field and full-size ball, so the ball was half the size of my body. (laughs) I just remember clearly my dad saying to me, now I want you to go out there and tackle the man with the ball. And uh, I was like, okay, no worries, you know, and... You know, I'm so motivated, you know, to get out there and I ran out, on the fi- ran out onto the field and uh, I jumped into dummy half and I passed the ball to the first receiver and chased after him and put this beautiful tackle on my own player. <laughs> and uh, I, it was funny because I, I was, was working with Dad on my defence during the week and being so small, you know, he was sort of a bit concerned for me and he was just teaching me what to do and so I've tackled this guy around the legs and I've I've looked over at Dad and Dad just sort of like, put his head, head in his hands and I thought, oh, I've done the wrong thing here. And he, he wanted me to hit around the thighs and squeeze their knees together and I thought, I'm too high. So I've, I'm literally, it was a copybook tackle, this tackle. And I've, so I've slid down the guy's legs. I still remember this so vividly. And sort of got around to just above his knees, squeezed his knees together and looked over at Dad like with this big smile, like nodding my head at him like, yeah, is this right? And uh he just shook his head again and went, no, you know, like hands raised. And uh, I got up and I was just really puzzled with what he was sort of dismayed about. And uh, yeah, ended up, you know, at half time, he said to me, now, mate, when I said tackle the man with the ball, I meant the guys in the other coloured jerseys. <laughs> and um, yeah, it was a very inauspicious start to my rugby league he career. Need, he needed to give you the full instructions. I think that's fair uh, yeah. enough. Well, there was only one way from there and it was up. So uh, you couldn't get much worse than that. A few years after that first game, you got the chance to be a ball boy for your dad's team. What exactly does a ball boy do? Oh, he just collects the balls that are kicked into touch um, or when they're you know, taking a shot at goal, he'll stand behind the uprights. Um, if they're taking a, a shot at goal and it's your team, you'll run and deliver the kicking tee or back then it was sand. He'd have to run the sand out so they could build a little mound to put the ball on. And you're, you're on the side of the field. You're right next to the action. And that was, you know, one of the most, um, you know, amazing and also terrifying things I've ever done. Or, you know, it was it was so exhilarating and then so horrifying. Well, what, what happened to make that first game horrifying? The first game that the Sharks played, they were playing uh, Canterbury at Belmore. And I just remember being in the dressing room just 
in awe of these giants of men, you know, and I, and I, you know, we get to run out first, you know, in front of them with the balls. And, you know, I remember dad saying, you're ready. And I'm like, yeah, I'm ready. You know, like I was sort of ready three hours prior, just to be honest, like I was that keen. I uh, got out, got out there and just in the first half of the game, um, you know, literally not 10 metres away from me, 15 metres max maybe, uh, my dad got hit with a high, a swinging arm and just had his jaw absolutely shattered, uh, you know, sort of smashed into that many pieces. I was sort of like in shock at what I'd just seen and uh, dad didn't move. And I remember, I remember turning around and we we're just in front of the race where the players running in and out and mum and dad, mum, mum and my brother were sitting in the stand. And dad sort of tried to sit up and there was just blood and it was just really, it was quite horrific. You know, for a, you know, seven-year-old to be witnessing, you know, that happened to your dad. And then when, when I, when my brother saw it, my brother's like really emotional and he just lost it and he just started crying. He's trying to climb over the seats to get to dad. And I'm sort of like out there on show for everyone. And I didn't really know what to do or how to react. Like dad was just sort of dazed and just blood pouring out of his mouth and his jaw just wouldn't shut. Like you can see it was just hanging down sort of like the hinges were smashed. And uh, I just couldn't, I'd sort of froze. And then, you know, not, you know, a minute after dad had disappeared up the tunnel, this cameraman comes running down the field to me and he's like, oh, you're Steve's son. I'm like, yeah. He goes, sit here, mate. Let me get a photo of you, you know, and just... It was just, and I didn't know what to do. I mean, I was a kid and I'm just sort of like going along with it because that's what you do when you're a kid. You know, you don't know that you can say no or, you know, I was told don't say no, you know, don't disrespect your elders, all that sort of stuff, you know. So, yeah, it was pretty scary. Um, what did you see when you went to find your dad in the dressing room? Well, it was it was the old Bel- Belmore Sports Ground, which is, you know, old big concrete stadium. So I remember just creeping like after, at half time, the ball boys weren't allowed in the dressing room, so I was sort of standing outside. And then when everyone came back out for the second half, I walked in and I just remember, just I remember it like yesterday. Like it was like we were creeping into a haunted house. I could hear like the buzz of the crowd up above me, and it was cold, and it was just I'm just sort of creeping into the down the tunnel, and it was dark, and the and the dressing room door was just slightly ajar, and I sort of just walked walk down. Real slowly, and I and I didn't know what to do because I hadn't seen Dad, and I just sort of stuck my head in, and there was Dad just sitting on his own with his. There was a strapping bench up against the pylon, and he was sitting on the the strapping bench with his back against the pylon, just sort of like with his head against. His head was right back, like leaning on the pylon, and he and he sort of like just caught must have caught caught my head popping in the thing, and he saw me. And he waved me over and he didn't say anything. He just waved me over and he sort of motioned like he tapped the bench next to me to next to him to jump up on the bench. And I jumped up on the bench and he just sort of pulled me in real tight and gave me a hug. And that's sort of like when all the emotion just poured out of me. You know, a seven-year-old kid just in complete shock and just broke me, you know. And um, Peter Maloof, the team doctor, came out. He was in the other room getting some medical supplies and that's why Dad was there on his own. There was no one else in the room. And uh, Peter just said, oh, he's going to be all right, mate. Don't worry. You know, your dad's tough. He's going to be okay. Dad just grabbed me and took me under his arm and just hugged me and just made me feel like, well, as much pain as he would have been in. I mean, I've got no doubt. I mean, I've broken my jaw before. I know how much it hurts. But um, he didn't care about that. All he cared about was making sure I was all right. It was probably one of the the softest moments that I had with dad um, in his life. Your dad 
always prized competition and competitiveness. How did that play out between you and, and your big brother, Don? How competitive were the two of you as, as boys? Oh, yeah. I, I, I'm probably borderline unhealthy. Um, like we, we, we would compete in if, – if, if we were doing something, it was, we'd find a way to compete in it. You know, who could eat their cereal the quickest or – you know, at bedtime, who can get up the stairs the quickest? It's you know, it was just ridiculous, like what we we would compete at. But my brother was stronger, um, but I probably had a little bit better hand-eye coordination um, as we sort of started to grow up. So I would beat him in in a lot of those you know the games like handball or tennis or you know anything that we'd do. And he didn't like being beaten as much as I didn't like being beaten. So whenever he beat me, whenever I beat him. In the you know the skill based stuff, he just beat me up physically, <laughs> and uh, it just became just this back and forward our whole life. And you know he credits himself to to toughening me up for the rigors of you know an NRL career. And he's probably <laughs> he's probably got a fair point there. But um, what happened one day, Matt, when you and Don had an argument about whether or not you could stop an exercise bike that he was riding? Yeah, and and this is where it borderlines on unhealthy. Like I he was riding an exercise bike. I. I thought I could stop the wheel and he said you, I couldn't and I'm like, I could and uh, it just went back and forward again. I said, well, I'm going to and he jumped on the pedals and pedaled harder and I re- tried to grab the spokes to stop the wheel and, um, yeah, just cut my finger off. Um, so you cut your finger off and I imagine that creates a lot of noise. How, how did your yeah. mum react? Well, she was, she was in, she was, it was at my neighbour's house. So mum and dad weren't there. They were getting ready for the Dalyam Awards that night, actually. And Kids always have such good we were, timing. We were getting babysat <laughs> a few houses down, and and the the son of the pe- the people's house that we're at was a friend of my brother's. So like I was sort of like the third wheel, and I was trying to sort of show off or just try to get into the mix, you know. And yeah, I just remember just grabbing that wheel, and my hand just sort of like circling around, and then just hitting the fork, and my finger just snapping off, and and I just <laughs> like I looked at it. I just remember like being in shock and looking at it, thinking. I don't, my finger's gone, you know, and then I just like, there was no blood for a second. Like it just happened so quick. And then all of a sudden just blood just started pouring at the end of my finger. And the the kid whose house we're at just absolutely lost his marbles. <laughs> and like Don's run in and grabbed a cloth and chucked it on my hand. And, and like, to be honest, like with mum, she was expecting something to happen all the time. Like, oh, I'm going to see seen a lot. broken arm yeah. or a broken ankle or, you know, like something like that. So, when he runs home and says, oh, Matt's, Matt's cut his finger off, mum comes sort of storming down the road like, ah, oh, it'll be fine. It's not going to be, it'll just be a deep cut, you know. And she pulled the cloth off from the top and when she pulled it off from the top, the flap of skin was hanging over the bone. So she actually thought it was just a deep cut. She's like, oh, it's just a deep cut. We'll take you down the hospital, down to Sutherland Hospital quickly and we'll get it stitched up. And, um, oh, man, it was... It was just started to really throb on the way in the in the hospital, and this was, you know, back in the days when you know no seat belts, bench seats in the front, and you know you're just bouncing around the car, and I'm sort of trying to hold my my hand still, like to not hurt. And she goes, "Give me another look at it," and I sort of offered my hand to her with my palm up, and when she pulled the cloth off, the skin came back, and she just saw that there was no finger there. And then she goes, "Oh my God, you've cut your finger off!" And I'm like, "I know, I told, you, I told you back there." Um, anyway, they. By the time they, they couldn't find the finger because it was only small. I was only about five or six. Shot across the room and um, they found it the next day and, uh, yeah, it, and my finger had been repaired and it was the, the end of my ring finger and my right hand so it wasn't sort of 
Oh, I guess, you know, I can live, I could live without it. Just another day in the Rogers family. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, <laughs> well, my brother got shot in the head with a slug gun one day. That that was a bad one because my mum rang my dad and she goes, I just, now I don't want you to panic, but Don's just been shot in the head. And it's like, <laughs> right, can we put some context around this? Like, can you say, okay, there's been a slug gun involved? You know? But uh, yeah, that was one of a numerous, one of numerous things that went down. How had your mum and dad first got together, Matt? Um, that's a, that's a good story, that one. I mean, my, my mum and dad were, were childhood sweethearts and my dad moved to the Gold Coast when he was young and my mum was born and bred Gold Coast girl and she was one of 13 kids and, um, single parent home. So it was, you could imagine what that was like back then, you know, my nan raising, you know, 13 kids on her own. Um, it was tough. Sort of what you would say compared to my dad from the other side of the tracks, and um, my mum and dad were. My dad was was best mates with with my mum's brother Gary, and uh, Uncle Gary uh, set up my mum and dad with this like crazy sort of like oh Carol or Steve wants to go watch this movie, but he hates horror movies. Can you go watch it with him? And she's like, what you know? And then he said the same thing to my dad. Oh, Carol wants to go watch this horror movie, and she's scared of him. Would you? She wants you to take her, you know, like and. So like, it was this crazy setup. My my mum didn't actually like my dad at the start, but anyway, they they worked it out and they they became sort of you know they fell in love quite quickly. And then my dad, um, my dad's dad, my my pop, he was not a big fan of that relationship at all. How did it, he try to stop it? Well, he tried to take my dad to Sydney away from my mum because my dad had just won the the grand final with the, with the Gold Coast Tigers in the, in the Gold Coast competition. They were called the Gold Coast Tigers back then in 1972 as a 16 year old. And he was playing in the centers, playing A grade. Um, it was a tough competition back then. And, and my, my dad, my, my pop had relationships at St. George. My, my uncle Ryan had signed a contract to play for St. George, but, but went to war in the into Vietnam and never, never played. So my, my pop had this, these grand plans for my, father and and my mum was derailing these plans and uh dad just ran away with mum and said I'm not I'm not going to Sydney without her you know like and and he took off and um they were hiding out on the Gold Coast somewhere in one of mum's friends houses or something and anyway pop out and ended up finding them um and my mum was six months older than dad so my my mum was already 18 and my dad said to my pop, I'm not going to Sydney unless I can marry Carol on my 18th birthday and I'm taking her with me. And, you know, the the rest is history, I guess. <laughs> I got married the day after my dad's 18th birthday and he went to Sydney and ended up at Cronulla and a star was born, I guess. Yeah. After your dad's playing career ended, your family moved to northern New South Wales where your parents took over the running of the, the pub at Lennox Head, which was great for you because you were a mad, keen surfer. But yep. how did you start making money without uh, your parents knowing that? <laughs> well, my my I was I was quite the little entrepreneur really. My mum and dad had a had a owned they had shares in the pub and my dad was the publican at the Lennox the Lennox pub right on the beach there. So yeah, I just and they'd have these huge New Year's Eve parties and um they'd shut the streets off and so dad had to build this shed out the back and just stock it full of alcohol, like cases and cases of alcohol. So I just thought I would go and get a key cut. Um, so I went up to the to the local hardware and just, just got a key cut. And um, how old were you? I was thirteen. Actually, I probably wasn't quite thirteen. It was just after New Year. 
Um, and yeah, I just, I just thought I'd, I'd sell the alcohol that I could get out of there. I'd, I'd just tell my mates I can get alcohol and I'd sell it. And, um, just, yeah, I mean, it's sort of not, not something that I'm proud of, but I was, I'm quite proud of the fact that I thought about it. Like <laughs> I just, I just had this, I didn't want to put pressure on mum and dad because they were under pressure. And I thought, oh, if I can just make my own money, then I'll take pressure off them. How can I do that? And I thought, oh, I'll just, yeah, I'll, I'll get a, I'll start my own little underage bottle shop. What were you spending the money on? Oh, surfboards and clothes and food and just, it, yeah, just stuff, you know. No, no, I, I certainly wasn't investing in, um, you know, Fortune 500 companies, <laughs> so I can assure you of that I wasn't that entrepreneurial. I was, uh, I was just, yeah, just doing kid stuff. And, you know, we love surfing and, you know, new wetsuit and come out, go get it, you know, all that sort of so stuff. So what put an end to this first small business venture? Well, there was, it, it led down a pretty dark path, to be honest, and I ended up sort of running with... Uh, a few of the wrong crowd and, um, you know, we started to vandalise things and steal, rob houses and stuff and um, it got it got really dark, to be honest, um, to a point where, you know, I got arrested um, with, you know, another another guy and, uh, yeah, I, I ended up, like, I remember sitting in the uh, police station at Ballina and just the, the sergeant in the police station just read me the riot act and I'm just thinking, oh, no, I'm going to jail. Um and, you know, what we did probably deserved it. Um, I was fortunate, you know, I sat in the magistrates, the juvenile court and sort of the magistrates talking about two years in juvenile detention and, you know, I'm just like going, wow, you know, a year ago I was playing for Queensland uh, in rugby league and my future I thought I had mapped out and just sliding doors moment, I'm going to juvenile detention. And my dad said, oh, look, there's been a... I have an opportunity for him to go to the Southport School, a GPS school on the Gold Coast. He can board there and, yeah, the, to, you know, to this day grateful that um, the magistrate said, yep, he's got to go. He can go. He can go there, but he's got to stay there for two years. And, um, yeah, best, best, the best thing that ever happened to me in my life in terms of direction was the, the Southport School. After finishing up at high school, you and your brother Don signed one-year contracts with the Cronulla Sharks. What did it feel like turning up to that first training session as the son of club legend Steve Rogers? It was intimidating because, you know, you're surrounded by all your heroes. Like back in those days, there was no, like if you were in the squad, you're in the squad, you know, from first grade down to under 21. So, you know, I rocked up as a 17-year-old kid fresh out of, I spent a couple of days at schoolies and just went straight down there. And um, I felt like I was ready. Well, I wasn't fit, but I, I was reasonably fit, but I felt like I was ready until I got there. And it was just like walking and I felt like I was that ball boy again, you know, surrounded by these giants of the game, you know, the Andrew Eddinghausens and the Dan Staines and the Les Davidsons. And, I mean, these guys, are like, I wanted to take my autograph book into the dressing room, but it's like, <laughs> oh, that would be uncool. Um but it was brutal. Like, you know, we, we rocked up, my brother and I, I had to finish sort of school and didn't get to training until three weeks or three and a half weeks after they, they'd already started. So it was just, you know, from the minute we started, it was hard. And, but I didn't want it any other way. I wasn't, wasn't looking for it to be easy, but I, I, I made it hard because I'm like, I'm not here to rest on my father's laurels. I'm not here to, you know, 
I want to show people that I'm here because I deserve to be here because of what I can do. You know, maybe a name opens a door, but it doesn't if you can't perform, you can't perform. And I, I worked my tail off from the minute I got there. How were you earning money that first year? Because it wasn't a paid contract. No, no. Well, I was, but, um, you know, after about a couple of months, I owed the club money because I'd crashed my car and I had to get stuff fixed and all this sort of stuff. But but um, it was for a few thousand dollars to be there. But, yeah, I had to work. I mean, everyone worked back then. Even the first grade players worked. But um, I... I was doing a carpentry apprenticeship, so I started doing carpentry, um, did that for a few months. We were driving an hour and a half, I would say, minimum to work every day. We were going out to Minchinbury from, from Cronulla um, and then coming back in Sydney traffic back to Cronulla to train in the afternoon. And I got to the point where after a few months I was just beat. I'm like, my, I was just, you know, as a, as a and, you know, if any tradespeople are listening to this, like first-year apprentices are basically laborers, you know, like so I'm just lugging stuff around all day, every day, and by Friday, by week's end, you know, I'm, I'm just exhausted. So I couldn't – I was just playing really badly and I'm just like, I don't want to do this. Like I, I rang Dad and I said, I'm quitting. Well, actually, it didn't quite happen like that. <laughs> my my brother was holding up a baton <laughs> while – and, and I, no, I was holding up the baton for my brother to hit into the in, into these studs or whatever and, and – he hit it and it popped out and smacked me right in the face and I just went, oh, that's it, I'm done. And I walked straight into the foreman's office. I said, I quit. And he's like, you can't quit. I'm like, yeah, I can. I just quit. And he goes, what are you going to do? I'm like, I don't know. I'll find something. But this is, I'm, I can't do what I want to do doing this. And, um, yeah, my my brother was a bit, well, I was his taxi ride because he didn't have a licence at that point. So he was a bit shattered. <laughs> but um, I'm like, I'm doing, not doing it. And ended up going and selling cars at Tyne and Motors. One issue you had at, at 17, Matt, was your weight. You were 70 kilos, which mm. is uh, is pretty light uh, in, in that grade of football. How did you go about bulking up? Oh, I just, I would speak to everyone about it. And then I spoke to one guy and he goes, mate, you just got to eat when your metabolism's at its slowest. And he goes, you got to fast metabolism. And he goes, it's, slow, it's, it's at its slowest when you're asleep. You can't eat while you're asleep. So just cook dinner for yourself twice Put one in the fridge and wake up at three in the morning and eat it. What? So yeah, well, <laughs> what well, would you was, eat at three a.m.? Just because I needed to put weight on, you know, like I just was desperate because you train so hard, and if you've got a fast metabolism, it's not the same for everyone, but for me it was, you know, like it, the the reality was like I just couldn't hold weight on. Um, well, I was, I was like even, I mean, it would it would get worse. Like I was, I rocked up to Cronulla at about sixty eight, sixty nine kilos, I would say. During the season, I'd get up to like 73, 74 kilos. Then in the off-season, I'd go back to 68 kilos because I'd stopped doing all the training, so I stopped eating so much. And it was like that for for a few years. But I would just I would just set my alarm, you know, every night. I'd cook like a big spaghetti bolognese or, or my wife would at the time and chuck it in the fridge. And then, you know, 2.30, 3 in the morning, my alarm would go off. I'd, just, I'd literally wake up and I would, well, I would barely wake up. I'd barely have my eyes. I'd just stumble out sit down, like I just eat cold spaghetti, like just, well, you know, I'd heat it up sometimes, but more, I just couldn't be bothered, you know, I'd just eat it, just ram as much in as I could and then just go back to bed, wake up a few hours later, go to training. I'd go to training, I'd eat, I'd go straight to this little place called Noshi's and I'd just eat as much as I could. I wouldn't go to the bathroom um, just so I could get to training and stand on the scales and see if I weigh, would weigh an extra kilo. But that's how obsessed I was with it. I mean, I, I it sounds ridiculous, but 
like I, I didn't just want to play in the NRL. Like I wanted to be something in the NRL. You know, I just didn't want to just get there and go. Yeah, I just, I don't know. The more I see of people who've succeeded, there's lots of stories like that. You know, it's not just me. There's lots of them. As your footy was taking off, you also became a dad at, at 20. Your first mm. your first son was born and you got some hard news in your family from your mum. What what yeah. did you find out was happening to her? Yeah, well, I was pretty young, 20, and my mum rings me and, you know, she she told me she had cancer. And and to be honest, when I heard that, I'd, I'd, never, I'd, ne- I'd never really had... My nan died of pancreatic cancer when I was really young and I was just never really, like, involved in any of the discussion. Like, I was just too young and too sort of naive to understand anything. Um, when my mum got cancer... I just, I thought, I just remember having this feeling, oh, you'll be right. I didn't say that, but I'm like, oh, you'll be right, you know, like, because I just, I just, my mum was such a, like, critical part of our family. Um, she was a real glue that held our family together. It was a bit of a strange dynamic in our house. Dad, dad was not there very often, and mum was, mum was the conduit between us and dad, because dad was was amazing and loving and caring to our sister Mel, but to us boys, he was just like it was just really hard, you know. And mum mum deciphered the conversations, or you know, dad would say something and we'd think he's hammering us, and mum would go, no, no, he means this. And she would she could always control the situation, and she could she could get that out of the back of the sports bar at Heathcote Pub at you know seven at night before it got out of hand and like she could do those things that nobody else could and when she got sick I just thought oh she's superwoman this, this isn't going to stop her and oh she put up a, an incredibly brave fight you know five for five years but you know to to die at 46 years old of breast cancer and leave behind you know your kids she just met our daughter. Um, who was born just as she passed. Yeah, so that's how old I am now. And I just think about like what I have in my life. And I just, I'm so excited about the future that if somebody told me that it's not happening, I don't, I don't know how I'd go. Broadcast. Broadcast. This is Conversations with Sarah Konoski. Matt, you were making your way at Cronulla Sharks, but Frustrated partly by the fact of having your dad Steve there, who was the icon of the club as as your boss, as he was a he was a manager with the Sharks. So in two thousand and one, you decided to leave rugby league for rugby union and joined the New South Wales Waratahs, where you were selected to join the national squad. What do you remember of your first try for the Wallabies? Oh, that was a doozy. That one. That. Um... I'll never forget that one. That was 2002 at um, Homebush at the Olympic Stadium. We were playing the All Blacks in the deciding Bledisloe Cup match and we were down by six points at the time. And, uh, yeah, I I remember coming on the field and just thinking, I've got to make an impact here. 
and I had an opportunity, and you don't get many opportunities at the top level, particularly With against the All Blacks. Particularly against the All Blacks. <laughs> and I got an opportunity, and I dropped the ball. Uh, it was about eight or nine minutes to go at that time, and I just sort of I've just blown the Butterfly Cup, and then. Oh, man, like an opportunity came a few minutes later. I thought, I'm not letting this one go. And I just, I could see see what was un, unravelling here. I could see what was unfolding in front of me. And, um, yeah, I just ended up with a couple of big forwards opposite me. And I just thought, oh, I just I just need the ball. So I just yelled at George and he put the ball out in front of me and yeah, just stepped around the big guys and scored, which, you know, I've never heard an eruption like it, you know, inside that stadium. Um, it was just amazing. And to, to sort of... To score that try in such a pivotal moment, and I mean, we thought it was pivotal then. Well, it's the last time we won it in the last twenty years, so it's sort of far out, man. And I, I just, I don't know when it is that we'll win it again. But you know, I just feel blessed to have been able to hold that Bledisloe Cup. That same season, you were playing against the Springboks in Johannesburg. Tell me about the scene that greeted you when you arrived at the Ellis Park Stadium. Yeah, it was it was it was quite confronting to be honest. Like. I'd never been to South Africa to play a test match. I'd gone over there and played provincial games and uh, for the Waratahs earlier on in the season, but I'd never been there for a test match and just seen the the hype around their national team. And I rocked up to Ellis Park. It's uh, the scene of where, you know, the, the, the Springboks won their World Cup against the All Blacks when they were underdogs. They made a movie about it. But they're just so passionate. I remember pulling him and they just... I don't know whether it was to intimidate us, but they just—I remember that I remember the the bus pulling into the stadium and just the noise, the buzz, the people, and then this big rope being dragged around from the back of the bus, and it, and it formed this big sort of circumference around the bus, and then guards rushed into that circle and stood facing the crowd with their guns, basically pointing them at the crowd to keep them away from us, and it's like that's your first experience. Like they are, um, man, you, you go up to like the high belt up in South Africa and they are big men and they are big angry men when you are not wearing their colours. And, um, yeah, I, I can't I can't quite say on radio what was said to me on a number of occasions, but it's it was, it was it was a very intimidating atmosphere to play in. You were on tour with the Wallabies in London and were invited along to Buckingham Palace to meet the Queen. What instructions were you given? Well, the main instruction was uh, don't feed the corgis. <laughs> uh, well, it was one of many, but, you know, address her as mum and don't don't offer your hand if she doesn't offer hers and, you know, speak clearly and stuff like that. When the corgis came out, like how do they compare to other dogs oh, they, that you've known? They, they, were, they, were, they were like they smelt like the nicest treated hair from the best <laughs> salon you've ever been in. They didn't smell like dogs. They they were not real dogs. I'm sure, no, they are real dogs, but you know what I mean. Like, they were not, doesn't smell anything like my little Acey, my staffy that lives at home, I can tell you that. But, I, I, like, yeah. Did was, you follow was, the instructions of do not it, feed the corgis? Well, it's like putting a, a paint, wet paint sign up. in front. Like, why would you say that? Like, I'm not, well, I've gone to visit the Queen and you're telling us not to feed the corgis. It's like far out, you know. Anyway, I was the only one sitting in the room, so I ended up maybe dropping a little bit of scone and they uh, they partook in the scone and they loved it. And I ended up having this little harem of corgis in front of me, about eight of them all sitting up like little kangaroos. It was phenomenal. It was um, 
Yeah, it was really, it were, was really were cool. Were you sprung by her match? Well, I think she may have a bit of a sense of humour, the Queen. Well, I mean, you know, rest in peace, you know, like oh, I loved the Queen. I, I really did. I don't know if I'm a monarchist or a Republican. I don't know. I just loved her. I thought thought she just oozed class. How did but, she handle a football player in well, her she came, room she, feeding her dogs? Yeah, well, well, she came around the group and she got and she was like spending like 30 seconds, max, not even 30 seconds, like I would say 10 seconds with each person. There was about 20 in the room and by the time she got to me, she'd been through about 15 of them. So I'm like, okay, shake your hand, move on. Yeah, cool, I've met the Queen. And, and I, I certainly wasn't... I certainly wasn't blasé about it. I was very excited to be there. I was in awe of the situation I was in, in Buckingham Palace. I loved the history of that. And um, I'd been injured. And when she got to me, that she, oh, this is Matt Rogers, our manager introduced me. Oh, Mr. Rogers. I'm like, yes, mom. And she's like, you're the one with the injury. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I am, you know. And uh, she stayed with me. For, and then you know, she gives me advice, actually, about... Oh, you, you you need to you know really rest up. I've had a rib injury before, and I'm thinking, oh my god, the, the queen's giving me an injury advice here. My mates are behind the queen because we're in a semicircle, and they're laughing because basically for the last ten days I'd been like a Kentucky tourist. I wasn't training because I was injured, and I'm just out having a party and having a great time. The queen, she kept asking me questions, and she's like, oh, have you have you ever been to England before? I said, oh yeah, I used to live here, and then it started a whole new range of questions because I. <laughs> And then um, the dogs started to come in and they all just one after the other just filed in and I'm just like looking at these things going, get the hell out of here, you little buggers. <laughs> and they all sat up like little like little kangaroos. And they're like, <laughs> she looked at the dogs and she's like, oh, they don't often do that unless they've been fed. And I just went, oh, I don't know anything <laughs> about that. <laughs> and, but to see the dogs came in there about 15 minutes before her. So this is why I think she might have a sense of humour. I'm like, I'm, I'm tipping there's probably cameras in Buckingham Palace. She's backstage <laughs> going, all right, that guy's feeding the dogs. He's the one. I'm going to get him. Like, how? I mean, it'd be pretty boring if you weren't doing stuff like that, I would imagine. You know? like, so she's, she lined me up and got me a beauty and, um, yeah, so I had to lie to her, unfortunately. Wasn't the only lie that happened that day. What did you decide <laughs> to take as a souvenir from Buckingham Palace? Oh, wow. You got, you're going deep now. I think I'm... Um, I'm past where they can rest you after doing something <laughs> that was so long ago. But um, well, well, we used to have these court sessions, and guys used to bring stuff. When I say court sessions, just a fun thing that all the boys would do after a week of away, being away and stuff. Uh, like one of the guys, like this is hilarious. This is the Australian team that we should like. One of the guys took the doorknob off the lodge. Like that was a funny story. That's 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 Googie Harrison. He's he's got a funny story about that one, but because we got it back. Uh, in a funny way, but so yeah, just silly stuff. But you go into court, and if if you've done something silly during the week, like said something silly in the press, or you know done something wrong, you know, like you get in court and you'd have to do something silly, like eat a chili that was super hot or something. But if you could take an item in there that was unique from where we'd just been, it's like a credit. It was like a get out of jail free card. So one of the boys says to me in Buckingham Palace, "Have you seen these spoons?" And I'm like, oh, yeah. And he goes, mate, they've got the Queen stamp on them. You can't buy these. I'm thinking now, I'm thinking you probably could buy them. <laughs> you know, like, but back then I'm thinking, oh, wow, this would be amazing. Let's get some spoons out of Buckingham Palace. So, um, yeah, I tried to, um, I tried to, 
yeah, pill for a few spoons and I put put them in my pocket. I, I was, as I was leaving, I thought, I'm home. We're in the courtyard about to get on the bus and um, this big hand on my shoulder. Mr. Rogers, if you'd like to return those spoons, we won't make this an international incident. And I just like, like literally, like as white as I was, I, I literally didn't really turn see-through. I was that terrified. I'm thinking, oh, no, this is my first tour with the Wallabies. The league guys come over to Union. He's just tried to steal from Buckingham Palace. He's never playing. <laughs> he's the corgis. He's going back to he's going back to the league. <laughs> I'm sure Cronulla would have had me back. But the um, what happened? I ended up going back to the hotel, and I just went straight to the manager's hotel room, and I said, "I'm definitely not going to be any good next week." And they were going to, to Italy, and I was really keen to go to Italy, but I was like, "Like I've got to get out of here because this could blow up." So I went straight to Phil's office. Said, "Get me on the next plane home. I'm going to be no good. I want to get back to the family." So um, yeah, off I went. And you're still wanted by Interpol, but you, you escaped it. Yeah, you escaped yeah. at that point. As you were playing uh, with the Wallabies and the Waratahs, there was various injuries, and then you and your first wife uh, split. So things were things were a bit challenging, Matt. But how did how did things turn around for you on Australia Day 2005? Well, it's when I met the most amazing woman that I've ever come across, my wife. Um, yeah, it was just a chance meeting, you know. I, I was there with the Waratahs and a good friend of mine, Daniel McPherson, the actor and TV presenter and stuff. He's a Cronulla boy and, we, you know, we'd sort of known each other for quite some time. He was hosting a show called The X Factor and my wife, well, my now wife, she wasn't my wife then, Chloe, was the, was, the, was his co-host. And um, we just bumped into each other and Chloe came over and, and um, Daniel introduced me to her and she had this big hat on and I couldn't see her face. And I'm like, it's under there, you know, like, and he introduced me and she sort of looked up and I sort of looked under and sort of caught eyes. I'm like, oh, wow, she's beautiful. And um, well, I just separated from my wife a couple of months earlier after a very tumultuous few years. And Chloe had been through a similar situation with her partner. We literally just sat there and just wallowed in each other's self-pity for the afternoon and I think we really enjoyed each other's company. And... Uh, yeah, it was. Um, it, it, it set a little spark inside me that I just thought was dead. You know, I just you know, relationship troubles. You know, and just I just doing it real tough to be honest, mentally at the time. And um, she was just that um, little flicker of light that just sort of just started to sort of get me back to life. You and Chloe moved to Cronulla together, and she became pregnant. So there was a lot of joy around for for you then, but early in the new year of 2006, a friend of your dad's arrived at your place with some, with some awful news. What had happened? Yeah, my dad had, um, my dad had passed away and it was in a really shocking sort of just out of the blue situation. Um, we just got back from Byron Bay and I was, we, we got back at three o'clock that morning. We'd driven through the night. And uh, this was six in the morning. So I'm literally in bed and I hear this banging on the door and the door was just below this landing of stairs that came up to my bedroom door. And I, I could hear Downs, he was a mate of mine, Martin. He, used to, he was my neighbour, he was also a friend of Dad's. He's like, where's Matt? Where's Matt? And Chloe's like, he's upstairs. Has he spoken to anyone? And he's like, no, no, he's, he's asleep. You sure he hasn't spoken to anyone? I just kept him saying that. I'm like, what? What's going on here? Anyway, we, Chloe comes up. She goes, Martin's at the front door. I said, I know I can hear him. You know, like, and I, I went downstairs and um, 
He said, get, get dressed and come, come, you've got to come with me now. Martin was an ex-detective and uh, just, a, just a good friend, you know, and I remember getting in his car. It was one of those black Holden Caprices or something like that, you know, like just a nice car, just thinking, nice, oh, it's a nice car, you know, and then he's like, have you spoken to anyone? And I'm like, no, mate, you just woke me up. I got home at 3 o'clock this morning. He goes, mate, I don't know what to say. He said, you just, I just gotta, I just, you just got to prepare yourself for the worst. And I'm like, the worst? What, what's going on? He goes, your dad. And I'm like, the worst? Like, he's dead. And he's like, yeah, he's, he's dead, mate. And I'm just like, like, even talking about it now, I just think, man, what, how bizarre. Like, just like that, you know, like he was, he was there and then, and then he chose to finish it, you know, like in that. That was probably the hardest few minutes, that drive over there, and then I got met by this plainclothes police officer in, a, in like this brown jacket, I still remember it. Comes up to me and he's like, oh, Mr Rogers, there's a deceased male in the stairwell that we, you know, I'm sorry to say we believe to be your father. Um, would you be okay to identify um, your father? And I'm like, yeah, I'm not going anywhere. Start with Martin. Chloe then sorted things out at home. She, she was over. And then they called me to go in and, and identify his body in the stairwell. And I remember just sitting there with him for like an hour or so and just talking to him and just wondering what was going through his mind. You know, like I didn't know, you know, in hindsight now, and particularly now with the way that mental health is so spoken about, um, and, and, and I think we're a lot more educated nowadays. Um, yeah, I just I just remember... Just wondering why, you know, like what the hell, you know, like now yeah, I just came out and saw Chloe, went home and just sort of sat there and sort of pondered life, spoke to my sister and and we're just we're just so dumbfounded by it all. You know, I just still to this day I'm still so dumbfounded by it all. The loss of a parent like that is is so hard for anyone, but you had to go through it in public, you know, mm. with fans and journalists wanting to give their take on your dad. Mm. What was that like? It was horrible, you know. It was just, yeah, it was really hard and speculation and this and that. And like, well, I mean, I wasn't trying to hide anything. I just didn't want to speak to anyone. The hardest thing, you know, was just like a period of time after it. It was like because I ran away from it. I went to Lord Howe Island and tried to get away from all the noise and I knew I'd have to come back and I came back and I just could not handle the side of Cronulla. I couldn't handle people coming up to me and, and asking me what they thought was an important question to them was a stupid question to me and I'd never been rude but this one day I just absolutely snapped at a guy in the Cronulla Mall and I just came home and I just said to Chloe, we've got to leave, you know, we've got to get out of here. I can't be here. And um, yeah, it was a tough time. It was it was not easy. I had some beautiful, beautiful people around me at that time. You know, my my doctor at the time, Sharon Flahive, who I would walk over hot coals for, um, was there for me through a very, very difficult time, and she she rescued me from self destruction. You and and Chloe made the decision to put some space between your little family and, and Cronulla and you moved up to the Gold Coast. You signed with the new NRL club, the yeah. Titans. Yeah. How surprised was Chloe by that decision? <laughs> well, she was very surprised because I told her I was retiring because that was that was the plan. Like, I, I, I didn't want to play anymore. 
I finished. Oh, I thought I'm going to finish this year out with the Wallabies. And I, don't, I didn't want to disrespect that Wallaby jersey. Like, it meant so much to me as a kid. It meant so much to me when I wore it. And I just was not in a headspace to travel around the world and play in that jersey anymore. And I was, I was doing that a disservice. And then uh, a friend of mine just said, go and meet Michael Searle. I'm like, mate, there's no point. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quit playing at the end of this year. But uh, he said, mate, go and see Michael Searle. And I'm like, who is Michael Searle? And he's like, oh, he's, he's the owner of the Gold Coast Titans. And... Went and sat with Michael and um, he just painted a picture of what my life could look like and it was a, it was a really nice picture. So I got out of the meeting and Chloe was very, uh, she was very, she was nonplussed. You and Chloe had another child in 2007, a little girl. What changes were you noticing in your son Max in the lead up to his sister's birth? Well... Yeah, we used to we used to be a really affectionate little baby, you know, like at like at sixteen months old, you know, fifteen, sixteen months old. I'd be Maxie, come give dad a kiss, you know, and he'd look at me and he'd waddle over and he'd give me a big kiss on the lips, and he was just so affectionate and lovey dovey, you know, this little baby, and I loved it because I love hugging my kids, and as much as my teenagers hate it now, and my twenty six year old son hates it when I give him a kiss. Um, I'm like, mate, I'm going to do it till the day you die. I can trust me on that one. Yeah, I had this little thing going with Max and it was our little thing, you know, and then, you know, at about sort of 17, 18 months, I just, I remember, I remember him coming in and I was laying on my side of my bed and I'm like, Maxie, come give dad a kiss. And he just sort of looked at me and he just didn't register. He looked sort of like, looked straight through me and he just kept walking off. I'm like, Maxie, Maxie. And he just kept walking off and I'm like, and I remember like next day, same thing. And I'm like, Chloe, why is he not giving me a kiss? She goes, he doesn't have to give you a kiss. I'm like, he's, he's not giving me a kiss. There's something going on. And I just remember thinking, oh, this is weird. This is not, it's not how it's meant to be. That Christmas you were on a family holiday at the Central Coast and with all his cousins running around, what was taking Max's focus? A dripping tap. Like he sat by this tap for three days, basically, and just, you know, would put his finger underneath it and it would just drip on it and he'd watch it run down his finger and he'd just play with the little drip. And, um, yeah, it was just a, it was pretty disconcerting. Yeah. And all these cousins, you know, that were a year or two older than him were all running around having fun. There was all these toys there and everything. And he just totally disinterested. What did Chloe's dad say to you on that trip? Well, he, he just recognised that he'd worked, he's a, he's a barrister and he'd worked in a case dealing with a um, child with autism. And, um, so he studied it and recognised, um, the signs and he, he pulled us aside and said, I think Max is autistic. That, that didn't go down very well. What were your fears back then, like with that label and, and with what you were seeing? What were you scared well, of? To be yourself? honest, well, well, from my point of view, I was relieved because I saw something and I didn't want to say too much because I didn't want Chloe to get upset. It was her first baby and, you know, I, I, was re- I was relieved that Michael had the courage, my father-in-law had the courage to to say something because a lot of people go, no, he'll be right. He'll talk in a couple of years' time. Well, he's just a slow learner, you know, and the, the sooner you can get onto stuff that I know now with autism is like you can really speed up their development. But Chloe really suffered, you know, in those early stages of that because it was just sort of smack between the eyes for her. Like she felt like she'd failed as a mum, which was, had absolutely nothing to do with her as a mum. She's the most amazing mum ever, but 
she just was all she wanted to be. So it was just such a heart. She was heartbroken. Um, but we 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 drew together in that hardship, which was good. Didn't push it. Didn't push us apart. You were eventually, after going through that, you know, it can be a tough process of getting a diagnosis, but after about six months you were, were given a diagnosis, or Max was given a diagnosis of autism spectrum disorder and you were referred to an early intervention centre. Mm. What happened once Max could, could go along there? Well, he just started to, like, change. Like, you know, like I, I get criticised for saying... You know, using the wrong terminology and stuff with autism and what's normal and what's wrong and what's right. And it's, you know, like it, I just, all I know is like we, we had a child that was totally disengaged and then three months later we, we got our son back. And I was just like, wow, this is this is unbelievable, like what's going on here. You know, when, when your son says, you know, I love you to his mum, the three words that any mum wants to hear from their child, it was just so amazing what we were seeing happen to our son um, and it came at a fairly hefty cost so you know my wife was just so overwhelmed by the help that we'd got to help our little boy reach his potential that you know, she decided to start a charity to help all the parents that couldn't the families that couldn't afford to yeah, do well, what let's we were doing. just on that because you'd originally thought you guys would have to be on a waiting list for a couple of years before Max could get into that centre. And and what were you told about why you were able to to get in much sooner? Yeah, well, we we had a meeting in there, and they were like, "Oh, yes, yeah, so this place, this place," and you know, but this was an autism advisor from Autism Queensland, and um, we that we'd been assigned, and we met at this school, and like it's a small centre and little intervention centre, and she kept referring to you know. We're gonna, you know, give you advice, but you can do it all here. And then she'd say something else, and you can do it all here. And I'm like, when you say here, what do you mean by here? What is this place? Where are we? And she's like, oh, this is an early intervention center for children on the spectrum, but it's also a, it's a, it's a childcare center as well for other, for typically developed kids. So they can interact at playtime and stuff, and it helps the kids develop. And I'm like, oh, great, all right, well, we'll just come here. So then I go, I go out to the front desk and I speak to Robin, the lovely lady who founded it, and I said, oh, we'd like to enrol Max. And she's like, okay, um, I'll put him on the wait list. I'm like, wait list, how long? She's like, two years. I'm like, oh, all right, okay, we'll put him on there, but that's too long. We need, we need stuff done now. And um, two weeks later we get a phone call from Robin. She's like, okay, I've got a spot for you. And I'm like, hang on, like, you told me it was two years. She's like, yeah, well, I said, look, I, and I, I remember having this conversation with her because I'm like, I don't want to... I was playing for the Titans at the time. The centre was on the Gold Coast. And I just sort of felt really yuck internally about taking a kid's spot because of who I was. So I said to her, I said, I'm not, we're not getting this spot because of who I am, are we? It's not right. And she's like, no, no. She goes, we've interviewed all the families before you. None of them can afford it, so you're up. And I'm like, wow. And, um, you know, it, it was an expensive exercise. cost 40, 40 odd, 50 grand a year. Um, so it was out of that that you and, and Chloe set up your charity for ASD Kids, which mm. has raised something like $2 million? Over. About three now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, we, I mean, we, we just help families in situations that can't get the help that they need like that, you know. That's, and that was the catalyst for it. I mean, just recently we just, there's a school, a special school on the Gold Coast that needed air conditioning um, they were trying to raise funds and it's so hard for schools. And, and, and I mean, it just frustrates the life out of me that the kids that need the most get the least in, in a lot of these school situations. And 
Um, yeah, so we just spent $45,000 on an air conditioning unit for the air assembly hall and stuff. And I love doing that stuff, you know. I've got the ability to influence people to come and help me to raise money to help people that, you know, need it. Yeah, I love I love helping kids. That little boy is a teenager now. What's he like? <laughs> he's six foot four and he's got size 13 feet. He's a monster and he's the most beautiful kid. I tell you, I would not change a thing. I would not change a thing. You say, go back, take you back 16 years, we're going to change it all. I would say, no, you're not changing it. I just, I love him too much. He, he's done too much for me. He's um, He changed me as a person and changed the way I look at the world and you know, he, he taught me that the world's about others and, um, yeah, I'm grateful for that. Tell me about how he's changed you as a, as a person, Matt. Oh, he certainly softened me. If you ask my two older kids, they could probably articulate it better, but I'm a very different parent to my younger kids than I was to my older kids because I was, well, I've matured a lot, but when you have that come into your life, when you have a special needs situation come into your life, then you need to slow down a bit and just really take stock of where you're at and what you've got to do to make things right. You know, prior, I was just so gung-ho about everything. I was, I was so foot flat to the floor and just hopefully someone can clean up the mess behind me because I'm going. You know, and um, yeah, Maxie just helped us to just breathe a little and um, yeah, love a little harder and yeah, hug a little tighter. Matt, it's been really wonderful to hear your story. Thanks so much for being our guest on Conversations. No worries. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Matt Rogers was my guest on Conversations today and Matt's memoir is called A Father's Son. I'm Sarah Konoski. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Sarah Konoski. For more Conversations interviews, head to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Hi, Miyuki Okiranta here. If you like stories that get at the heart of human experience, then I'd love it if you checked out my podcast, Earshot, where we eavesdrop on life as it's lived. I think I just held my dad's hand and just hoped that I was going somewhere safe. We're kicking off a new season and it's all about promises. Made, broken, kept and stretched. I couldn't promise that she would have a great life because you can never promise it to any child. <laughs> but I promised that she would have a life and that I would look after her and be there for that life. His funding's been stripped. Like, stripped. I wanted to be metaphorically the dying person in the room. I wanted the members of parliament who were gonna oppose this law to say it to my face. Just search for Earshot on the ABC Listen app and I'll catch you there. Love is great, but sometimes that's not enough. Promise me?